Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. If, like me, you're isolating at home and cabin fever is setting in, you might be on the lookout for new podcasts to pass the time and assuage your rising anxiety. So instead of a new how-to interview, this week I'd like to share with you an episode of the brilliant Global Goalscast. It's a show about the unlikely heroes spurring change, innovation and disruption to help produce a more equitable world. And it's the perfect antidote to those feelings of despair that so many of us are trying not to give in to. In this episode, series host Edie Lush runs a computer simulation to figure out how to stop climate change. If you enjoy it, you can find more just like it at globalgoldscast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week when economist Linda Yu meets former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, to investigate how to live with uncertainty. Without further ado, here's the Global Goldscast. Research shows that showing people research doesn't work. You can tell people the science, you can show them the science, you can give them the presentations, and it just doesn't change people's behavior, their thinking, their attitudes. The way learning happens for most people almost all the time is people learn from experience and experiment. But in the climate situation, as more people find out that holy cow, this climate change is really a serious threat to our lives, our prosperity, our security. It's just going to be too late. We can't afford to wait. And there's no way to run experiments. We only have our one planet. So that is why you need simulators. So your job, Edie. Yeah, if I choose to accept it. Well, you don't have a choice right now because <laughs> okay. the, world is, the world is counting on you. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores how to change the world. Claudia, welcome to season three. We're back. We're back. We're amazing. Award-winning, 125,000 downloads featured by Apple, inspiring real action. The Global Goalscast is back. Yes. And do you know what? I missed you this summer when we were not recording. I know. I lost actually like practice. Let's see how today goes. But today, Edie, today and in this episode, we're going to tackle the biggest challenge of all, climate change. Edie, this really is the biggest challenge that human beings have ever faced. It involves everyone on Earth. It affects everything from how we work, how we eat, and even how we play. It affects fairness, poverty, well, the entire human society is affected by climate change. And, Claudia, the problem is so big and so complex that many people either just deny the problem or they throw up their hands and say, ah, we're toast anyway, we can't solve it, so let's just get ready to live with it. Yes, yes. And I read Jonathan Franzen in The New Yorker saying that exactly that. How depressing. Climate apocalypse which is what he was talking about, I don't think is helpful. And at the Global Goals cast, we prefer to talk about the champions who are doing something. Optimists, the glass half full types, the never say never people. And we find them. And when we come back, we're going to introduce you to one of them. 
you can join me in saving the planet. But first, this. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by BSR, Building a Just and Sustainable World. Join BSR November 12th to 14th in San Jose, California, to hear how innovative companies are navigating a new climate for business and paving the way for people and planet to thrive in an era of unprecedented change. www.bsr19.org Thanks to CBS News Digital and to Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast. Welcome back, Edie. Seriously? You saved the planet in your demo? Actually, Claudia, you're going to have to wait for part two to find out. No spoilers. But what I can tell you is that I spoke to an MIT professor who's built a computer model of the global climate and the global economy. 60,000 people have played his simulations, everyone from Chinese technocrats to members of the U.S. Congress. Our editorial maestro, Mike Oreskes, calls this a flight simulator for piloting the planet to a safe future. Hmm, a flight simulator is a teaching tool according to the maestro, isn't it? That's right. Professor John Sturman of MIT explained why that's such a good analogy, and then he put me in the pilot seat. Oh my God. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Good morning. Good morning or good afternoon. Almost good evening here. So thanks so much for being with me. I am delighted to be speaking to you. And tell me about what I am looking at right on my screen. What is this? Well, you're seeing an interactive energy and climate policy simulator. And why did you create this? The way that basic research in climate science proceeds is using some of the most complex largest simulation models ever developed. These models are essential for understanding how the climate works and moving the frontier of climate knowledge forward. Uh, but they take weeks or in some cases months to run on some of the largest supercomputer clusters in the world because they have an enormous amount of detail. And this is essential for basic progress in climate science. But it, because of that, and because they run so slowly, they are not helpful for education and for policymakers and negotiators who meet, for example, uh, through the UN every year. So what we did is we developed a set of models that behave the same way as the large models do at the global level or at the level of a few countries. Can't give you all the detail that the big models do, but in return, they run essentially instantly on an ordinary laptop. And that makes them useful for policymakers, negotiators, business leaders, leaders in civic society, the media, and others. Why don't the policymakers, negotiators, and other leaders simply use the results of the big models. The reason is simple. Research shows that showing people research doesn't work. <laughs> and this isn't just about climate, uh, whether it's you should wear your bike helmet and your motorcycle helmet, you should buckle up your seatbelt when you drive, uh, you should quit smoking, 
Vaccines are overwhelmingly safe and save lives. You can tell people the science, you can show them the science, you can give them the presentations, and it just doesn't change people's behavior, their thinking, their attitudes. Hmm. So the way learning happens for most people almost all the time is people learn from experience and experiment. Hmm. But in the climate situation, experience is going to come just too late. We can't afford to wait. And there's no way to run experiments. We only have our one planet and we can't. But it does feel like we're we're actually in an experiment right now. I mean, even just this morning, the exactly. news on the radio was that yet again, we've had another summer of insanely hot temperatures in Europe. In France, they were over 40 degrees. We've seen one-time-in-a-lifetime right. storms happening twice within two years. So it feels like we are in an experiment, yet we still need a tool like this because governments, right. companies, people aren't making the changes necessary. So that's absolutely right. We're running a giant, uncontrolled experiment. And when we find out, as I think we already have, but as more people find out that, holy cow, this climate change is really a serious threat to our lives, our prosperity, our security, it's just going to be too late. There won't be any option to go back. So that is why you need simulators. And you're exactly right. We, we call these tools management flight simulators, and we've been developing them in my group for decades. So that's what we're up to here. Okay, so let's fly the plane, if that's the right analogy, or let's fly the Great. simulator. So think of this as the cockpit of the simulator, and you've got these graphs. Okay. You just ask me what you'd like to see, and mm -hmm. if we've got it, we can bring it up on the screen. So as you can see, and as we just mentioned, uh, under this business-as-usual scenario in which population of the world keeps growing according to the UN's projection. Uh, the economies of the countries around the world keep growing, so people are becoming more affluent and the less developed countries are rising out of poverty. Uh, that is accomplished right now with no climate action, with an awful lot of fossil fuel, a lot of coal, oil, and gas. And that drives emissions up, and that leads to warming of over 4 degrees C by the year 2100, 7.4 Fahrenheit. And the consequences of that are, are likely to be nothing short of catastrophe. So your job, Edie. Yeah, if I choose to accept it. Well, you don't have a choice right now because <laughs> okay. the, world is, the world is counting on you. So down at the bottom of the cockpit, yeah. you've got a whole lot of different policy levers that you can implement. So let's start off with looking at burning fossil fuels. I think we know that Great. globally, 25% of greenhouse gas emissions today comes from burning fossil fuels to create heat and electricity, mostly for residential and commercial buildings. So what slider do we need to push to try to look at that issue? Well, you could try to change the energy mix. You mm -hmm. could tax or regulate coal. Let's do that. Let's tax coal. Great. So let's tax coal. Now, as I do this, as I move the slider, you'll see that the graphs are changing instantly. And as I move the slider to, to the left, what do you notice? It says highly taxed and the temperatures come down. Hmm, not so much. So above from above four degrees, 
to now 3.9 degrees Celsius or plus 7.1 Fahrenheit. Right, so you took two tenths of a degree C uh, off of the expected warming. So that's good. Okay, that's a good start. uh, It doesn't solve the problem all by itself. Okay. And by the way, take a look at the graph of the energy sources. So I'll move the slider back Mm -hmm. and watch the Watch the coal wedge. Okay. So the coal wedge should go down. Coal as wedge we do goes this. down. Yeah. Gas went up and oil went up. That too. is right. Oh, crumbs. That is right. Also, the renewables went up. Yep. But, okay. Let's celebrate uh, that. But not, but, but we also you've, had issues. You've, right. So, what do you think's going on there? Why did gas and oil get, uh, have their demand increase? Well, because they become more economically attractive. Right. Right. You've made coal more expensive through this taxation, and that causes people to substitute more gas, for example, in the generation of electricity. All right. So let's do something about that. Let's, let's, what do we do? Tax oil and gas as well? Great. You could do that. So let's tax oil. So I pulled that to uh, a high tax. And as I did that, let me go back. You'll see it real quickly. What happens to the oil wedge? It definitely came down, but that didn't do anything to the temperature. Right. Well, so watch the natural gas wedge. Oh. So that's without. This is so complicated. Okay. <laughs> right. So you've got a very complex economic system here with multiple markets. And by taxing coal and oil, you've definitely reduced their use. But you've done nothing to reduce the overall demand for energy. And so... You've increased the incentive for electric power to be generated by natural gas. You are getting more renewables, too. The green wedge of renewables has increased, but not enough to make much difference on the temperature. Can we give renewables some incentive? So over here on the the renewables slider, I'll slide it over to the right, and that implements a moderate subsidy Hmm. to promote renewables. So, So in the real world... What that looks like is uh, put into place or expand tax credits for individuals who go solar, for companies that go solar or put wind turbines in, for electric utilities who want to go with utility-scale solar and wind, including the storage investments that they need or the changes in the way the grid works. And what did that do for us? Well, we're we're now down to an increase of 3.5 degrees Celsius, which is better. Well, we're still quite far. Yeah. But there are there is good news here. Now, one thing to notice is subsidizing the renewables mm-hmm. did a lot more than just taxing the fossil fuels. Mm. Uh, and one reason for that is in many parts of the world today, renewables are already cost competitive with fossil fuels. Hmm. But they also benefit from a very powerful learning curve effect and from scale economies. So, for example, every time cumulative production of solar panels doubles, which is happening every couple of years or so, the costs of the next ones you build go down by a little over 20%. And this is because we have not yet reach the limits of what these technologies can do. It's the same for wind. It's the same for uh, energy storage that you need to handle the variability of wind and solar. And so by subsidizing renewables, you're having an additional benefit 
that you're driving their costs down faster than they would have gone otherwise. And that then leads people to use even more of them, which drives their costs down even faster. You have a beneficial reinforcing feedback loop there. You have a virtuous cycle that the more you use, the cheaper it gets. That's right. We need more positive feedback loops. Virtuous cycles instead of vicious ones. You know, I couldn't have said that better myself, Claudia. But let's take a brief break to hear from someone we're very positive about, Laura Gitman, the Chief Operating Officer of BSR. So what's the new climate for business and how and why should companies be preparing for it? So we're living through a period, as many people know, of absolute fundamental change. The only constant is change. And businesses really need to figure out how do they respond to these changes, given that the entire framework in which how they operate is evolving. So from climate disruption to the role of automation to the implications of artificial intelligence, these create new opportunities for business, but they also change the rules of the game. And at the same time, we're seeing increasing pressures and expectations from employees, from the political environment, from regulators, from consumers that actually redefine and question the purpose for business overall. So every day we work with companies as they think about these questions. And one um, aspect is figuring out what are the issues that are going to impact them. So first, we help companies make sense and anticipate the changes that they're going to be facing. And second, help them figure out how do they meet that challenge? So what are the strategies? What are the products, the services, the ways of partnering and collaborating in, in new different kinds of opportunities that enable them to meet those challenges, but also meet the challenges that our collective business community are facing, right? So the challenges of achieving the goals of the SDGs, of achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement on climate, and that therefore working together to redefine what that new climate for business means. And Laura, you've got an event coming up in my home state of California. Tell me about it. We do. So BSR has our annual conference. This year it will be hosted in San Jose on November 12th through 14th. To find out more, you can go to www.bsr19.org. Welcome back. So Edie, how's the simulation going? Can you give me some hope? Because here in real life, I'm still very concerned about climate change. Ah, the simulation is tough. It gives you such a big sense of how complicated everything is, how many choices there are, how everything is interconnected. You think you're doing something great, and then you've caused something not so great to happen. However, one thing that is impressive is how well John Sturman is able to explain those choices. Tell me what about the, the carbon price? I'm interested in what happens if you fool around with that. Right. So up till now, what you've done is asked me to tax coal, oil, and gas individually, mm-hmm. which you can certainly do, but that's going to be complicated. So I'm going to actually undo those, Okay. and then we'll implement a carbon price. So what a carbon price means is that either through a fee, a tax, or a cap-and-trade program, the price of any CO2 emissions would go up according to how much CO2 is generated. So the carbon price is measured in 
how many dollars or euros or whatever per ton of carbon dioxide released. So that's going to affect coal more than natural gas because coal is the most carbon intensive fuel. Hmm. So let's pull that lever up to a, a medium level. And remember where we started. We start at now 3.7 C with our subsidies for renewables. Uh, and now we'll pull up the carbon price to a medium level. Hmm. And we're down to 3.3. What does that actually mean? Like consumer going to the pump to fill up their car with gas. What would that mean in terms of a carbon price or price Absolutely at the pump? Absolutely great question. So uh, on all these policy levers... I can click on a button and it shows me all the details. It gives me more advanced options. So right now we have a carbon price of $50 per ton of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean in the real world at the pump, as you say? Well, in the United States, that would mean that gasoline prices would go up by about 44 cents a gallon. Wow. So, well, is that a lot or a little? Well, I mean, it's definitely internalizing the, the price on the planet. But it's a big jump for, you know, many people. This is a great, great point. Uh, what are we going to do with all the revenue from this carbon price? Mm -hmm. So f let me, let's, let's take a look at that graph. So if I look here at the financial impacts, I can look at the revenue and the cost from taxes and subsidies. So you're subsidizing renewables. That's going to cost money. Now you're taxing carbon. That's going to generate revenue. Mm -hmm. And you can see here on this graph that the revenue from this carbon tax generates about $2.4 trillion a year globally. Mm -hmm. And that actually uh, outweighs the subsidies for decades. So then the question is, what do you do with the revenue? So one of the most popular proposals is rebate it to every person on a per capita basis. So you would get a carbon dividend check every few months, every quarter of a year, say, and you can do anything you want with that money. So uh, if you rebate the money to individuals on an equal per capita basis, you convert the carbon price from something that could be regressive into something that's going to be progressive and help the lower income segment of the population more. So what if we look at the next middle part of your screen or my screen? 23% of greenhouse gases come from the result of burning fuel for industrial purposes. So what happens when we start changing that mix of energy right. efficiency and electrification. What do those mean? We'll work on the energy efficiency of buildings and industry. Mm -hmm. So this includes uh, industrial facilities and the processes that take place within them. It also includes the energy used in commercial and residential buildings. Now, having a carbon price already has led to some increase in efficiency. Uh, but now let's implement a policy that would do more. So I'll pull the energy efficiency lever for buildings, and uh, I'll increase it moderately. And what did it do for us? 
Wow, we're at three degrees. Well, we're making progress. And that did a lot. One of the reasons, which you've pointed to, is an awful lot of the world's energy is used in buildings, industry, industrial processes, but also just buildings, commercial, residential, industrial buildings for heating and cooling and all the electricity that's used within them. So we've done a lot by increasing energy efficiency, and there are many, many ways to do that. The other reason that this lever makes a big difference is buildings and processes can almost always be retrofitted. So for example, I'm sitting here with your sound guy, Chuck, Mm -hmm. uh, in my house, and uh, it's a 90-year-old typical New England home made out of, uh, you know, uh, what we call stick frame construction, so two by four studs and so forth. Uh, and uh, when it was built, it was heated by coal and it had no insulation. Uh, when we bought the house, uh, it was heated by oil and still had no insulation. Mm-hmm. So over the years, we we insulated, we gradually replaced the appliances as they needed to be replaced with much more efficient ones. I swapped out a lot of the light bulbs, etc. And that actually lowered our uh, carbon emissions for the home quite a lot. But then, uh, about four and a half years ago, we did what's called a deep energy retrofit. So what does that mean? It means we put in a huge amount of insulation, not just blown into the walls, but extra insulation on the outside of the house. The windows, which were original, were leaky and in pretty bad shape. We put in much better windows that are super efficient. We put in LED lighting everywhere, very high efficiency appliances, refrigerator, washer, dryer, etc. We put in heat pump hot water that's super efficient, gets most of the heat to warm the water from the surrounding air. Hmm. And we completely eliminated the uh, fossil fuel heating system uh, and replaced it with air source heat pumps that provide heating and cooling. And then we put a solar array on the roof. And now, today, uh, our house generates 50% more energy than we use with no fossil fuel whatsoever. Wow. So in fact, we need the whole world to do what you're doing. I want to recap where we are and what we've tried. We started at over four degrees Celsius of increase in temperature by 2100. We've subsidized renewables. We've made the price of carbon higher. And we have... Uh, worked especially on energy efficiency of buildings. And we're now at an increase of three degrees Celsius, which is still not great. So this is hard because so far we've we've already done a lot of work and we're not there yet. As we know, we want to keep that increase to two degrees or 1.5 would be even better. Right. So the Paris target is no more than 2C and striving for 1.5. And although you've done a great job getting us on the path, 3 degrees C isn't where we need to go. And just to show you what that means, let's look at some of the impacts. Oh, no. Sea level rise. Oh, no. Uh, Right. So 
sea level rise is oh. barely less than what it would have been. Right. And it's over, uh, it's, it's just about, it's over a meter right now. And that's a conservative estimate. So, I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a kind of one of those, not quite a hockey stick graph, but definitely, you know, yep. on the steady increase. It's, Right. Over a meter of sea level rise still means that a lot of island nations, that that great refrain from the Paris Accord was 1.5 to stay alive. A lot of those island nations right. will not be where they are now. Right. And I got to tell you, it's even worse than what you're seeing because there's a significant risk that sea level rise will be much higher than what you're seeing here because of faster melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets than the literature accommodates. So, oh my gosh, uh, it's As entirely you're... possible. Oh no, we're up to 1.8 meters. Yeah, uh, right. You're almost at two meters, even with your policies so far. This is not at all impossible, according to the more recent science and evidence about uh, the accelerating melt of Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheet. So what does that mean? Well, let's take a look. It's not just, uh, you know, for the island states. Here's a... So you've now pulled up a map of the world. Right. So I'm going to zoom in on Shanghai just as an illustration. We can mm -hmm. look anywhere you like. Okay. And Shanghai, like many of the world's great cities, is a low-lying coastal city on a river delta. What you're seeing now is Shanghai today. Mm -hmm. 20 to 25 or more million people in the greater Shanghai area. Uh, now let's take a look at what happens if there's two meters of sea level rise, which is close to what happens in your scenario so far. And all of these blue areas now are inundated. There's saltwater intrusion coming up through the sewers. Uh, high tides, you're going to have sunny day flooding as we already have in Miami and up and down the East Coast. But it's worse than this because Shanghai and the coast of China is subject to typhoons. And uh, a large typhoon like Haiyan, which hit the Philippines a few years ago, or the typhoon that uh, hit uh, Tokyo recently, uh, they bring storm surge, multimeter storm surge. The storm surge in Typhoon Haiyan was four meters. So what I can do is I'll now take our two meters of sea level rise, which is causing immense economic hardship all throughout the Shanghai area. Mm -hmm. And now let's add a four meter storm surge on top of that. Oh my goodness. Wow, it looks like it's completely underwater. Right. So we wouldn't have to wait until the year 2100 for a disaster like this to be very likely. Uh, and it's similar if we go elsewhere around the world. Here's South Florida with two meters of sea level rise and a four-meter storm surge. So it looks like m most of South Florida is blue, as in covered with water. Right. Here's the Gulf Coast focused on New Orleans. And New Orleans like is it's already completely underwater. Below sea level. Right. It's gone. Goodness. Okay. So 
Uh, back to the simulation. Yeah, and you've done a great job uh, with a variety of policies here, price on carbon, subsidies for renewables, promoting energy efficiency for buildings and industry. You've gotten it down more than a full degree C. And it's, so that's great. It's still not enough. So when we come back, I'm going to ask you to see what else you might want to try to get us down towards no more than two. And we will come back to this and find out if Edi is able to save the planet. But we will do that in the next episode, which we will release after the Climate Summit and the UN General Assembly. We felt that this topic was so important that we decided to devote these two parts to this area and talk about solutions. And I cannot actually tell you how much my imagination goes to see Edie with a rake cape and actually like Superwoman style <laughs> flying around that simulator and saving the world. <laughs> You're just going to have to wait for that, Claudia. In fact, I'm going to see you on Sunday, the start of Global Goals Week. We've got five UN summits. We've got 17 big goals. I feel like the once again, the attention of the world is on New York next week. Yeah, but again and again, the relevance is completely different. Today was the day of the opening of the General Assembly and the Secretary General summed up the challenge. He said, we're losing the race against climate change and our world is off track in meeting the sustainable development goals. So what we're talking about with Professor Sturman in this whole special episode is how to get the world back on track. And you and I are on the optimistic. We're actually possibilistic. We're based on Hans Rosling factfulness when we see the world through data and the data indicates that we're on the right track. And nevertheless, there are things that we should pay attention that are concerning. But one thing that I'm very, very clear about, Edie, is how purpose, the sustainable development goals, sustainability are back on track and are absolutely moving the agenda forward uh, and becoming mainstream, like the tortilla effect. What is the tortilla effect? The tortilla effect is fascinating as an analogy for what we're talking about. It's an economic and behavior theory that indicates how a product that is like on the corner of a store, like tortillas in this case in the Mexican aisle or the exotic fruit, and have been pushed by consumers to become mainstream and now have been traveling from one aisle to the other until they are in the mainstream of bread. And people don't use tortillas anymore only for tacos. They use it for wraps. They use it for snacks. And that is what I've seen happens with sustainability and Purpose, that it has been pushed by consumers to the different aisles and now is actually moving from corporate social responsibility in countries or, or companies to become part of their central strategy of growth. But there's another way to get the tortillas from the Mexican corner to the main bread aisle, which is when the owner of the store would decide, I'm going to post this product here. And I think that that's what we were hoping to see next week with decision makers making an imposition and following the trend of purpose and sustainability to, to impose some action on climate change, because that really could have a ripple effect. I love the tortilla effect. And I think what you're saying there makes me think of this episode and the idea of what is happening with electric cars when they're going mainstream. And it is coming through in the next couple years. But we do have to be careful because while electric cars are great, if the electricity that they're using is not clean, if it comes from coal, then we don't actually bring the temperature down enough. And I learned that from playing with a simulator from Professor Sturman. Individuals don't clean 
the power grid. Companies do. We have seen some great companies out there, and there was a great example a few years ago when Greenpeace, the head of Greenpeace at the time, Kumi Naidu, stood up with the head of NL and agreed to take this energy company away from dirty power towards renewables, towards clean energy. So companies have a role to play, as do governments, as do consumers. The great news here, Edie, is that there's pressure on decision makers by young people, Greta, coming to New York, arriving with 17 different boats and making waves and increasingly attracting the attention of citizens, of voters and of players. And because we're so many more people like John doing simulations and doing groundbreaking innovation, I think that we have a great opportunity to be part of history and be, as we say, the first generation that can really stop the impact of climate change. So now my favorite section of the show where we give three facts that you can show off with your mother-in-law and three actions that you can take so that we can go on climate change, action, action, action. So for this, we went to a colleague of John Sturman. Often addressing climate change is framed as a big sacrifice, as though we have to suffer now in order to protect the climate for the future. But is that an accurate way to think about it? I'm Dr. Elizabeth Solon. I'm co-director of Climate Interactive, and my research focuses on what I call multi-solving. These are policies and investments that address climate change in ways that save money, improve people's health, and open up economic opportunity. Here are three examples of multi-solving. If 50% of short car trips were replaced by cycling in the biggest cities in the Midwest each year, 1,295 lives and $8.7 billion would be saved from a combination of improved air quality and better health through increased physical activity. That's from a study in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives. Between 2000 and 2016, all of the energy-efficient LEED-certified buildings in the United States combined to reduce air pollution from energy use enough to avoid hundreds of premature deaths, hundreds of hospital admissions, tens of thousands of asthma cases, and tens of thousands of lost days of work and school. Urban trees in Fort Collins, Colorado, provided more than double the return on investment required to plant and maintain those trees. The savings came from reducing energy use, improving air quality, reducing stormwater runoff, sequestering carbon, and increasing property values. Which leads to these three actions. We participate in multi-solving whenever we do home energy tune-ups or add features like green roofs and rain gardens to our properties, or walk or cycle to work. These steps save money in the short term, reduce air pollution, and improve our and our neighbors' health while also reducing emissions and helping protect the climate for the long term. Many multi-solving opportunities are bigger than one family can take on though. So a second category of action is to engage elected officials to make sure that public spending is directed towards solutions like these, multi-solving solutions with multiple benefits. All of us can practice connecting the dots in our own heads and in our conversations with friends and family so that more and more people can see how protecting the climate for the future helps create jobs, economic opportunity, and improved health today. All right, that is it for this special climate episode, at least part one. We're going to have the second half 
after next week's climate summit. Oh, Edie, I'm so excited by our new season. We take on climate right at the start. Woo! See you next time, Edie. See you on Sunday in New York. And until then, the big message is, if you liked this, please give us five stars. Please subscribe. Please tell all your friends. And go to our social media at Global Goalscast. Adios. Adios. Don't forget the tortilla effect, Edie. It's going to come <laughs> after you. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Cooprider. Our interns last summer, we miss you, were Addie Gisby, Ashley Esquivel, Darcy Nelson, and Hugh Ayara. Music in this episode was by Neil Hale, Andrew Phillips, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Ashish Pillowal. This episode was made possible with the support of BSR, also CBS News Digital, and Harmon, the official sound of Global Goalscast.